It's the Coat St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, May 28, 2020. On this date in history, on May 28, 1934, the Dion quintuplets were born. The five tiny baby girls, Annette, Emilie, Yvonne, Cécile, and Marie, together weighed only 13 and a half pounds. The identical quintuplets were the first quintuplets in the world to survive more than a few days. News of these miracle babies soon spread to newspapers around the world. On today's episode, movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson will be speaking about Wells versus Hearst, the story behind Citizen Kane. This is a fascinating story about a movie, perhaps the greatest movie ever made, was almost not made at all because the uh, newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst tried to stop it from being made. Hearst used all of his resources and all of his influence in an attempt to prevent the film from being released. What follows then is the story of the battle over Citizen Kane, a fight so fierce that the movie was almost destroyed before the public ever got a chance to see it. We then present author Mark Abley, who will be speaking about his memoir, The Organist. Finally, Erica Lee Martin will sing Stanchion by Franz Schubert. That's today's episode. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hi, everyone. It's the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson, the movie librarian. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'm going to be talking to you about the movie Citizen Kane. And I'll be doing so from Parc Jean-Mans downtown, just east of the mountain. So if you hear some extraneous noise, like joggers running by, the sound of happy children, chirping birds, and maybe a little street traffic, I hope it won't prove to be too distracting. Or maybe, if nothing else, it'll add a little color to my dulcet tones. People generally know two things about Citizen Kane, that it is widely considered to be one of the greatest, most important movies ever made, and that it is a fictionalized biography of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. At the time of its making in 1941, Hearst was 76 years old, while its genius creator, Orson Welles, was only 24. Less well known is that Hearst used all of his resources and all of his influence in an attempt to prevent the film from being released. What follows then is the story of the battle over Citizen Kane, a fight so fierce that the movie was almost destroyed before the public ever got a chance to see it. But this is also the story of the woman over whom this fight was really about, Marion Davies. William Randolph Hearst was, in his day, one of the richest men in America, whose success was built on a commercial empire founded on newspapers, magazines, and radio. This was long before television and the internet, when he was among the earliest titans of mass communication and entertainment. The original media mogul who used his empire to wield political power 
and shape public opinion. In 1895, Hearst acquired the New York Journal and engaged in a bitter circulation war with Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, which led to the creation of yellow journalism. Yellow journalism meaning sensationalized stories of dubious veracity, or what we might call today fake news. Hearst papers would regularly manipulate, lie about, and create the news, not just report upon it. Hearst's ambitions had always been for the White House, but the humble arts of politics, the backslapping, the handshaking, those were not his way. He had always used his newspapers to political ends, but in 1904, Hearst used them as a platform to pursue the Democratic Party's nomination for president. He failed. Later, he ran for governor of New York State and mayor of New York City, but lost those races too. By 1910 or so, Hearst's ambitions for high political office were mostly spent. In 1919, perhaps to compensate for his failed political ambitions, Hearst constructed and retreated to what became known as his San Simeon estate, one of the most lavish private estates in the country, which included no less than four castles, a private zoo, and a priceless art collection. Then, like a feudal lord presiding over his own kingdom, Hearst lived an outsized, fantasy-filled life on this property in Northern California, nearly half the size of Rhode Island. The actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr. once recounted the following anecdote, which I'm going to quote. My father once asked him, he said, Mr. Hurst, why don't you concentrate more of your energy on motion pictures, which has a worldwide audience, instead of journalism, which appeals to one city or one nation only? He thought a minute, and he said, Well, Douglas, I'll tell you. I thought of it, but I, deci but I decided against it, because I realize that you can crush a man with journalism, and you can't do that with motion pictures. Orson Welles was just the man to understand William Randolph Hearst. His first movie and grandest achievement, Citizen Kane, would follow the arc of Hearst's career. The great ambitions and the deep disappointments. But in doing so, Welles would have the effrontery to hijack the story of a powerful living man, to strip it bare, make it simple, and use it as clay for his drama, not unlike the way Hearst had done in exposing the private lives of so many celebrities in his own papers. This is the tragic irony, you might say, of which Wells was no doubt all too aware. For the first time ever, the means that Hearst had used to lay bare the lives of others 
would now be used on him. Wells knew the value of a fight, just like Hearst. And by age 24, his battles with authority had made him a household name. His career was built on controversy. And from the first, in New York City, he was much talked about, with one observer noting a pulsating energy through much of what he did. Orson Welles, the boy genius, as they called him, and much of whose childhood is a cloud of myth. For example, the magic tricks he learned from Houdini at the age of five, the writing of a paper on the universal history of drama at the age of eight, the taking up of bullfighting and reading the classics in the palace of the Pasha of Marrakesh in his teens. Well, guess what? None of that is true. The hard central facts are that his parents separated by the time he was six, his mother died when he was nine, and his father died from alcohol six years later, by which time Wells was in boarding school, just like the character of Charles Foster Kane. In New York, Wells wanted to shock people spectacularly, and he did so, presenting Macbeth in Harlem with a non-professional, all-black cast, and Haitian backdrop, a, a voodoo Macbeth it was called in the press, financed with a grant from a Depression-era jobs program, the Federal Theater Program, under FDR's administration. Hearst papers were critics of Depression-era social programs, too. Programs like the Federal Theater Project. And the shining star of the Federal Theater Project was Orson Welles. So in a way, it was almost inevitable that these two would come into collision at some point. And they did so early on. The attacks on Welles, directly or indirectly, began with his so-called Voodoo Macbeth, which may have created the impetus for a kind of revenge which would become Citizen Kane. Such an effect did Wells have that Time magazine put him on its cover May 3rd, 1938, and called him, and I quote, the brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Wells should feel at home in the sky for the sky is the only limit to his ambition. Just as Hearst had foreseen the boom in popular newspapers and turned it to his own ends, so Wells grabbed for the medium of radio and not just theater. Now, for the first time, a single man's voice could reach into living rooms everywhere. Wells not only seized this power, he used it more inventively and almost more recklessly than anyone. Wells started his own show on CBS called Mercury Theatre on the Air, on which he staged, most infamously, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, 
It terrified, quite literally, millions of listeners who thought the alien invasion depicted was a disaster unfolding as a real-time event. Wells feared that this broadcast would end his career, but it did just the opposite. War of the Worlds made him a household name all over the United States. And Hollywood came calling, offering him unrestricted control to do what he wanted, though he had never even made a movie, and all at the age of 23. In Hollywood, Wells had some very highbrow concepts for various film projects, but abandoned them all as unfeasible. His friend and sometime drinking buddy, Herman J. Mankiewicz, gave him the idea for Citizen Kane, and it was a perfect fit, a uniquely American epic about a giant of a man, a character of limitless ambition, who starts out as an altruistic young social reformer, but ends up an isolated old reactionary, bringing ruin to himself and all around him. It would be the classic stuff of tragedy. Mankiewicz was a good friend a fellow Hollywood screenwriter, Charles Lederer, who was also Marion Davies' nephew. Lederer grew up as a Hollywood habitué, spending much time at San Simeon, where Davies reigned as Hearst's mistress. And through Lederer, Mankiewicz came to spend weekends at San Simeon, where he would eventually come to closely observe Hearst. From this idea, he and Wells began working on story ideas, which led to the creation of Citizen Kane. Wells must have thought that he could get away with all of this, um, for we know that he ran it by his lawyers. Perhaps his experience in New York City suggested to him that in upsetting the apple cart, even one belonging to someone as powerful as Hearst, he could do no wrong. That any controversy stemming from the movie's blatant biographical content could only be beneficial. And if Hearst sued, well, that would be great, as the film would be news everywhere. That's Orson Welles. Great artist, but also great showman. But how wrong he was. Hearst caught wind of Citizen Kane almost right away after Mankiewicz gave a copy of the script to Charles Lederer. Hearst was absolutely furious, and not just because it stripped bare his own life, much as he had done himself in newspapers to countless others, but most especially because it presented an unflattering, even savage portrait of his longtime lover, the actress Marion Davies. In Citizen Kane, the supposed Marion Davies character is named Susan Alexander, who is depicted as a talentless alcoholic floozy obsessed with puzzles. Alexander is the mistress with whom Kane is exposed by a political opponent, and whose opera career, or such as it is, Kane ruthlessly promotes to great disaster for the woman herself. The collision between Hearst and Wells, the battle over Citizen Kane, 
was in large part a fight over the honor of this one woman, Marion Davies. Hearst first saw her in a chorus line in 1915. He was 52, with his pregnant wife at home, and she was 18. In the subsequent year, he would haunt the theaters just to see her, always in the second row, with one seat for himself and one for his hat. Hearst had long been familiar to the showgirls, one of the wealthy men who'd given a girl something nice if she favored him with her company. Marion was young, but already a practiced hand at this game. When she lost his first gift, a Tiffany watch, she called Hearst up and got another one. She was a gold digger in the parlance of the time and made no bones about that, but she knew how to make Hearst laugh and he loved her for it. But for Hearst, Marion Davies couldn't just remain a former showgirl. She had to become, just like Susan Alexander in Citizen Kane, a star. And not just any star. For Hearst, she would become a movie star. And so he formed Cosmopolitan Pictures just to produce starring vehicles for her. But in his relentless efforts to promote her career, it often had a detrimental effect on her performances and the movies themselves. Davies was more inclined to develop her comic talents alongside her friends at United Artists. But, point, but Hearst pointedly discouraged this. He wanted to see her in serious historical roles. Except that Davies was, by most accounts, a cheery, jolly, generous woman full of humor and wit. Wells may have always known not only this, but that she was also an actress of considerable talent, especially comedic talent, but would only admit it much later in the 1970s after both Hearst and Davies were dead. And that he had done her a great injustice in presenting her as this thinly disguised figure of Susan Alexander in Citizen Kane. One place that Wells made this apology of a kind was in the foreword to Davies' own posthumously published memoir in 1975, long after she had died in 1961, where he writes, and I quote, In the movie, Kane picks up Susan on a street corner, from nowhere, where the poor girl herself thought she belonged. But Marion Davies was no dim shop girl. She was a famous beauty who had her choice of rich, powerful, and attractive men before Hearst had sent his first bouquet to her stage door. I rejoice in this opportunity to record something which today is all but forgotten, except for those lucky enough to have seen a few of her pictures, Wells continues. Marion Davies was one of the most delightfully accomplished comedians in the whole history of the screen. She would have been a star if Hearst had never happened. 
She was also a delightful and very considerable person in her own right. The proof is in this book, and I commend it to you. Quote, unquote. Orson Welles in her. Davies was a very popular figure, loved to be around people. She liked champagne. She liked a crowd. Hearst made San Simeon into a palace for her, but it was she who turned it into a gathering place for Hollywood. It was the in place, the place to be. In Citizen Kane, however, Xanadu, the stand-in in the movie for San Simeon, is a lonely, forlorn, emotionally distant place, which the character Susan Alexander departs, leaving Kane a completely isolated figure. That never happened in real life. In truth, Hearst and Davies spent much of their time at San Simeon, entertaining, holding lavish parties with guests from all over the world. And it really was quite an impressive place. Upon visiting San Simeon, the great playwright George Bernard Shaw was quoted as saying, this is what God would have built if he had had the money. Though Hearst was a diminished figure by 1941, made nearly bankrupt by the extravagant sums of money that he spent throughout the Great Depression, he still had lots of power. Hearst papers had lots of readers and peddled tidbits of movie world gossip. In Citizen Kane, Wells portrays Hearst as a young man who goes after his enemies with joy just as they went after him. But was Wells aware that the older Hearst might still go after him in the same way? What Hearst did in response to Citizen Kane was threaten the studios, and not just RKO, Wells' backer of the film, but in effect all of Hollywood, with a war of mass sensationalism by releasing to the public, through his gossipy radio shows and the newspaper columnists who worked for him, every secret in Hollywood about its most lucrative assets, the lily-white actors and actresses populating its films. One of Hearst's minions, Luella Parsons, was the unofficial executor of Hearst's Hollywood power. She was more than a reporter, but rather a pillar of the industry and bringer of Tinseltown's news to millions through her radio show and her gossip column in every Hearst paper. After a specially arranged screening of the film, Luella Parsons called the office of RKO chief George Schaefer and threatened what she called, and I quote, one of the most beautiful lawsuits in history, end quote. Another RKO man quoted her saying, Mr. Hurst told me to tell you, if you boys want private lives, he'll give you private lives. Through Parsons and others, Hearst threatened the industry in every way he could think of. He even threatened a thinly disguised anti-Semitic campaign in his papers, decrying the high percentage of swarthy foreigners in Hollywood, an unmistakable attack upon Jewish studio heads and recent emigres from Hitler's Europe. Hearst warned, through The Hollywood Reporter, that their papers would crusade against all the major studios for 
quote, giving employment to refugees and immigrants instead of handing those jobs to Americans, end quote. Hearst then tried to destroy the movie itself by buying the rights to it and burning every print. Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, Hollywood's biggest studio, assembled his fellow studio chiefs and in their name offered RKO $800,000 for the negative to the movie, with the express purpose of doing what Hearst wanted, destroying Citizen Kane. Meanwhile, the real owners of the Hollywood studios, the money men who held the stock, and their lawyers gathered in New York City. RKO responded by sending to them a print of the film, which the heads of the corporations would view before deciding upon its future. Orson Welles was there, and before the assembled Wall Street Titans made a short speech about the need to fight tyranny at loose in the world, and the uniquely American value of free speech in doing so. By all accounts, Wells' heights of oratory made for stirring stuff, but for whatever reason, perhaps a public fight over the Bill of Rights or the fact of Hearst's imminent bankruptcy, the corporate heads stood by Citizen Kane. Well, somewhat anyway. Wells meant to ride this wave of free publicity straight onto the front page, but RKO mysteriously delayed the release of the movie. Within a month, the Hearst campaign had shifted. Now the target wasn't just the film. Hearst's American Weekly started researching an expose on Wells' private life. Would he be available to talk about Dolores Del Rio? Wasn't she married when he took up with her? A whisper campaign also questioned Wells' willingness to serve his country, with reporters showing up at his draft board and then following him everywhere. And of course, he was accused of being a communist. When Wells opened his Broadway play, Native Son, the review in Hearst's journal American called it, and I quote, propaganda that seems nearer to Moscow than to Harlem, end quote. That week, the FBI opened a file on Wells in which he was termed not just a communist, but a, quote unquote, threat to the nation's internal security. Hearst's attempts to buy and destroy all prints of the film failed, but there was something else he could do. Not only would no Hearst newspaper ever publish a review of Citizen Kane, no Hearst newspaper ever published an ad for it either. What's more, his papers threatened the theater chains. If you run Citizen Kane, we will not take advertising for any of your movies. And you know what? That worked. Citizen Kane opened for an engagement in New York City, where it won Best Film at the New York Film Critics Awards. It even got garnered nine Oscar nominations from a sympathetic film community in Hollywood, but only one for Best Screenplay by Herman Mankiewicz. But mostly outside of New York and Los Angeles, there was a complete blackout of Wells' movie, and as a consequence, it lost lots of money. After this nominal release, RKO sequestered Citizen Kane to its vaults, where it remained for 15 years, largely unseen by anyone. Perhaps as a direct consequence of the Kane controversy, RKO yanked control away from Wells on his follow-up movie, The Magnificent Ambersons. They gave it to someone else to finish, and then released it in a badly truncated version. Wells was never allowed to complete control 
over a major Hollywood production again. It is not the least of ironies that Wells' success had peaked by the age of 25. Though he was to go on to make some great, if little appreciated, movies in later years, someone who was once as well-known as President Roosevelt was now known mostly as America's youngest has-been. All's well that ends well, people would joke, and showmanship instead of genius became the RKO slogan in 1942, plastered all over the studio stationery and elsewhere, in the year after they dumped Wells. Hearst died in 1951 in Marion Davies' home at the age of 88. The body was whisked away and she was barred from his funeral for the supposed sake of his reputation. Among the many ironies of this story is that that reputation would in time disappear and be replaced largely by the fiction he hated, attempted to destroy, and thought he had killed. Citizen Kane. In her later years, Davies was involved with charity work. In 1952, she donated $1.9 million to establish a children's clinic at UCLA. Part of the medical center at UCLA is named after her. She suffered a minor stroke in 1956 and made her last public appearance in 1960 on a television show special called Hedder Hopper's Hollywood. It was not long after that that she was diagnosed with stomach cancer and died in 1961. Once, when creditors were closing in on Hearst during the 1940s, she sold jewelry and real estate and gathered a million dollars in cash. Then she turned it over to him. You know, I started out a gold digger, she said, but I did fall in love with him. In later years, Wells became something of a bag vagabond patching together his own low-budget films based on a salary of acting jobs and TV commercials around the world. He also left behind many unfinished projects. He even once borrowed $250,000 from Charles Letterer, the money coming from Marion Davies' estate. Much chastened, like Kane, he lived out the last years of his life somewhat frustrated, somewhat isolated, and distant from the vast promise and accomplishment of his early years. Citizen Kane itself didn't come back into public view until the 1950s. By the early 60s, it started to appear on lists of the greatest movies of all time, and today it's commonly regarded as one of the most influential movies ever made. By most accounts, William Randolph Hearst died thinking he had killed the movie, but in the end, the images that Wells and his collaborators created in Citizen Kane are now the images most of us think of, if we think of Hearst at all. In fact, there is only one winner in the battle over Citizen Kane, and that's the movie itself. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you'll join me on Friday for Lockdown Viewing, in which I'll be providing recommendations for what to watch and where to watch it. Until then... All the best. Talk to you soon. Hello, my name is Mark Abley. I'm a writer and uh, editor and journalist living in Point Claire. And it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you like this. I want to talk about my recent book, The Organist, Fugue's Fatherhood and a Fragile Mind. 
and I'll explain the three elements in the subtitle as I go along. The organist in the title was my father, Harry Abley. And if my laptop cooperates, I'm going to play a few snippets of my father's music so that you can not only hear me talk about him, but also get a little bit of a sense of, of what he was like at work. Although I have to add that the sound quality will not be all that great because um, apart from whatever iPhones and, and an old laptop can do, the recordings of my father were made um, in uh, the 1970s, uh, in the 1980s, in one case uh, about 1990. So this, the sound quality is not great because these were recorded on amateur machines. The organist is not a biography per se. My father was not a famous man. He was not the sort of political leader or world historical figure or celebrity generally whom you like to read about maybe in biographies. It's a book about my relationship with my dad and how it shaped me over the years. So it's a book really about my younger self as well as about my father. And it's got a lot of reaction, I have to say, from people writing, uh, people reading um, in the book finding things about their own lives in it. And I hope the book has given men in particular the chance to respond with emotion. I think to generalize wildly, women tend to be uh, much better at responding um, with real feeling and emotion to what happens in their lives. Men close things down too much. I once heard the Irish novelist Edna O'Brien um, speaking about um, the difference between men and women, and the way she put it, I won't try and emulate her Irish accent, but what she said was that men have a foreskin over their hearts. And I hope what I've been able to do in The Organist is to draw back that foreskin over men's hearts. So who was Harry Abley? Let me first tell you a little bit about the man I knew, the man who helped shape my life so profoundly. He was born in 1917 in a little town on the Welsh-English border by the name of Knighton. And he grew up as an only child of a butcher. Uh, he could have been called Henry Abley Jr. and perhaps as a boy he even was. But my dad did not get on well with his father. He did not have a good relationship, I think, ever with his father. He was very close to his mother. He was an only child and his mother uh, had come to be the housekeeper during the First World War for my father's father, for my grandfather. And then my grandfather married his housekeeper, which was perhaps a little scandalous at the time. So my grandfather was already in his late 40s when his only son was born. And my dad grew up, he was a stutterer, he was shy, but he began to play the piano at the age of about eight. And then a few years later, he began to play the organ, the pipe organ, and he fell in love with the instrument and it became tremendously important to him over the years. Then when he was 15 in the depths of the depression, my father's mother died and dad was uh, left alone with his father, the butcher. Those were very difficult years. Then in his late teens, my father moved to London and he began to work as a cinema organist playing the mighty Wurlitzer in the big movie theaters of the time around London, 
uh, on the, the suburbs of London, Richmond and Enfield, places like that. And he was getting very good at that. And he was taken on as the youngest organist in the whole ABC theater chain at the age of 22. He had his own, uh, his, his own pipe organ in, in, in a cinema there. Then war broke out. And my dad became a soldier. And for six years, he drove trucks and jeeps up and down England. He got married at the end of the war to my mother when he was 28. And he began to work again as a, as a cinema organist, but Britain's economy was in very bad shape. And the cinema organ profession basically died out in the late 1940s, early 50s. So my dad got um, classical training and um, he became uh, a church organist and a choir master under the influence of my mother, who was a very, very devout Christian. And in the late 1950s, when I was two years old, my parents moved to Canada. They moved to Sault Ste. Marie, and Dad became the organist at the cathedral in Sault Ste. Marie. But my dad was a very restless man, and as you'll hear in a few minutes, restless is really a bit of a euphemism on my part. They moved back to England. They spent a couple of years back in Coventry in the city where uh, I'd lived as a, as a baby. And then they moved again, this time to Lethbridge in southern Alberta, and my dad became the organist of the Baptist Church in Lethbridge. So that's where I spent my years of elementary school. Then when I was 12, my parents moved again. They moved to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and my father became the organist of the Anglican Cathedral in Saskatoon. And then um, in 1977, dad was getting homesick and nostalgic for England, and my parents tried to move back to England, and they spent a year back there. That didn't work out, so they moved back to Saskatoon, and Dad became the organist choir master of a couple of churches there, and also an instructor in organ at the University of Saskatchewan. And then in 1985, a couple of years after my wife and I had settled in Montreal, my parents moved to Montreal, and Dad spent the last nine years of his life here. He died in 1994. Those were not happy years at all. Um, he did, however, um, write uh, a piece of music about something that happened when, when he was living in Montreal, which was the Oka Crisis of 1990. Dad wrote a piece of music called The Pines of Oka, and I'm just going to play uh, a short excerpt from that, maybe about 45 seconds of that, recorded uh, on the um, piano in his home apartment. So again, the sound quality is not great, but this is my dad playing a piece of music that he himself composed called the Pines Voca. tribute to the Mohawk nation, as he said, the Pines of Oka. 
So he was a good pianist, but he wasn't by any means a great pianist. He was really, really good on the pipe organ. That was the instrument of his life. That was what he loved to do more than anything else was play the organ. And um, the thing about an organ that you need to realize is that it demands incredible physical dexterity. Um, prior to the 19th century, prior to the invention of the steam engine, apparently the pipe organ was the most complicated machine that human beings had ever invented because it has several different keyboards, at least a good size, a big organ has three or four keyboards or the grandest even have five keyboards. And then there are these draw knobs called stops on either side of the keyboards and you can pull out or push in the stops to alter the tone to make it sound more like a trumpet or more like a clarinet or, or whatever. So you use the, the stops as well as the, uh, the keyboards with your hands, but then there's also a full keyboard that you play with your feet, the pedal board. And um, so very often an organist will be using both feet and both hands at the same time to play a tremendously complicated piece of music. It's not surprising then that the organ used to have the nickname, the King of Instruments. And my dad certainly thought of it as such. He was not a strong man in certain ways in his life. He was physically quite a small man, but he certainly became kind of a king or a prince, at least, when playing the organ. And the organ is traditionally or widely associated with Christian churches. That is not anything that is absolutely necessary. I mean, you also find pipe organs in symphony halls like La Maison Symphonique in Montreal has a, has a tremendous organ. And there were some secular pieces by composers like Camille Saint-Saëns, who wrote a great organ symphony. Um, and my father resented the, the idea, the association that, that a piece necessarily had to be religious. Now, when he was a young man, of course, he was playing in these great cinemas in England, playing the mighty Wurlitzer, and he had a signature tune that um, some people may well recognize, These Foolish Things. That was what he, he would play on, on the cinema organ uh, regularly. Each cinema organist had a particular tune, and that was my dad's. So I'm sorry I don't have a, a good recording of These Foolish Things, but I do have a not bad recording of him playing a great showpiece for organ by the French composer Charles-Marie Vidor, the Takata. This is the beginning, the first uh, 40 seconds or so of Vidor's Takata for organ. Well, that piece goes on for several minutes and I won't inflict all of it on you, but I think you would have heard there how the pedals come in below the keyboards uh, that he would have been playing with his hands. Um, 
So the, the subtitle of the book, The Organist, is Fugues, Fatherhood, and a Fragile Mind. And the fugues refers, of course, to music. In particular, the compositions of Johann Sebastian Bach, J.S. Bach. Um, my father was, uh, in his way, a religious person, but I sometimes felt growing up as if his true God was J.S. Bach. My mother had a uh, who, who was a devout Christian, had uh, a cross on, on the wall of the living room, but my dad had a portrait of J.S. Bach on the wall of his study. Bach showed him, I think, a way to God. And when I was writing the book, I tried to even emulate, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, the structure of a Bach prelude and fugue or toccata and fugue, because the first half of the book sets out in in some detail what I experienced as a boy, and I'm tempted to say what I endured as a boy. Um, I don't feel I had the happiest of childhoods, although there was certainly no, no physical or sexual abuse of the kind that far too many other children endure. But I was lonely and I did struggle, and my relationship with my father was one of the reasons why I struggled. So in the first half of the book, I set things out as I remember them. But in the second half of the book, I do what a fugue does, which is to bring in other voices, other perspectives, other points of view. And I realized in the course of writing the book how profoundly um, inadequate and even wrong in certain respects I was about my dad. There were so many things that I didn't fully comprehend about him. I guess this is how it is for a lot of us that we think we understand our parents and maybe we do in in great flashes of light to an extent, but there are also elements that we don't understand till we grow up and, and, and become older. And that was certainly the case for me. My relationship with my dad uh, shaped me in so many ways. I can think of trivial ways, for instance. One would be that... Um, I would see my father sometimes when I was a boy and my mother would call call us to the dining room table. It was a very traditional kind of family. My mother did all the cooking and the cleaning. And um, so my mother would say, dinner's ready. And my dad would come to the table with uh, a pencil behind his ear and he would have been writing little compositions on uh, the back of an old envelope or the church bulletin from the previous Sunday. And uh, there'd be a kind of remote look in his eye and he wouldn't altogether be there. And as soon as he would, would have spent a decent amount of time at the table and could politely excuse himself, he would head right back to the piano and take the pencil from behind his ear and pick up the, the envelope and start um, thinking again about the piece of music he was composing. Maybe it was a new setting of an anthem for his choir. Maybe it was uh, an organ piece he was working on. So that was a physical memory of my dad from my childhood. And then I realized that although I didn't become a musician myself, I did become a writer and poetry was the most important thing to me when I was a young man. And when I was a young man, I would often use scraps of paper. And if uh, I was called to the table, if my wife had been making lunch or supper, I would come reluctantly. And I would, um, as soon as it was possible for me to decently escape, go back to my piece of paper and my pencil and 
take up the, the writing again. So just like my dad. So that's a fairly trivial example, but there are much deeper ways too. One was um, how I wanted to earn my living as an artist and how I thought that being an artist was a truly respectable and honorable profession. When I was in high school and we had to write an essay about what career we might want, um, it was suggested by one or two of my teachers that I might want to be a lawyer. Well, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an artist. And I'm sure that was that was a legacy of, of my father. And to this day, I even though I'm not a musician myself, I don't make music, but I respond very deeply to music. And music often brings me to tears if I'm listening to a particular piece that means a great deal to me, or if I'm in a, in a concert hall listening to a great symphony or whatever. I, I realize that I can tear up in a way that, that most people just don't. And again, I'm sure that is, is a legacy of my father, because my mother was a wonderful person, but she wasn't particularly musical. And then there's the wordplay as well. Um, I used to think that because my mother had wanted to be a journalist when she was a young woman, that I inherited all my uh, love of language and so on from my mother. And certainly that's partly true, but it's also the case, as I discovered from going through some letters that I found after after my mother had uh, eventually died a few years ago, um, I discovered that my dad was also tremendously um, fond of wordplay. There was his nickname for her was Polly Wig, and um, there's a letter um, that he wrote to me that my dad wrote to me in which he he was talking about things going on at home. I was living away by that stage, and he talked about Wigo and Wiggins and Wago and Woggins, and just playing with the name like that in a way that that most men would not want to do, certainly not in a letter to their only grown-up son. But there was that childlike capacity that my father had, and I think it's necessary when writing poetry to be able to recapture some of that joy in language, and perhaps that's something that I, I took from him as well. But the third element of the subtitle, Fugue's Fatherhood and a Fragile Mind, refers to the darker side. My dad didn't talk about his childhood, he didn't talk about his past, so I had many discoveries to make in the course of researching this book. What I did know, what I've known all my life, was that my father's state of mind could be tremendously volatile, that he was not always in good mental health, he was prone to depression. He wasn't always grumpy by any means, but he could be. And he could turn his anger inwards into into depression and long silences. Occasionally, he it would also flare out, and he would he would go on long rants. He could be prejudiced. Um, there were things that were difficult for me at the time. They don't seem so difficult now. They even have their humorous side now. Um, so let me tell you one story from when I was a young man and I came home to where my parents were living. And they'd invited over to dinner uh, a good friend of theirs who was a man of quite a conservative disposition. And I was living in England at the time. And uh, this man turned to me when, thankfully, my mother was in the kitchen making dinner out of the way, but my dad was sitting across the room. And um, the man turned to me and said, well, Mark, what do you think of Mrs. Thatcher? And I paused 
because I wanted to give a, a, a fair answer that would not be offensive. I wanted to say that I I didn't agree with Mrs. Thatcher's policies, but I admired her force of will and her strength of mind and her clear sightedness. But I thought she was also dividing Britain in a very unfortunate way. Anyway, I was preparing that kind of answer in my mind, but I took a little too long in saying anything. And so my father said from across the room, I wish someone would assassinate that woman. Which was not anything he meant literally, but it was something that he was prepared to say, even though it might cause his guest a lot of offense and a lot of distress. And my father didn't care. In that sense, he was he was profoundly selfish. So this was the kind of legacy I had to come to terms with. And, and writing the book made me un understand much better um, the, the deep sources of, of why he was such a, a wounded person. But there were also moments for me of great pride. And in particular, what I can look back on with tremendous pride and joy are the concert tours that my father made uh, in Germany when he was um, in his 50s and 60s. And I accompanied him um, on, on one of those and uh, was in the audience for another one. So let me play a recording of uh, my of the end of Johann Sebastian Bach's Fantasia in G. The uh, the number is BWV five seven two. This is one of my dad's favorite pieces of music, and we're coming in towards the end of this. It, it would already he would already have been playing it for for six minutes or so. So this is the final minute and a half of Bach's Fantasia in G. So that was my father playing a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach. I knew that he was a terrific interpreter of Bach, but there were many other things that I only came to understand in the course of writing this book. And for people who are perhaps thinking about writing down their own recollections of their families, uh, their childhood, I think this could be a very useful exercise for lots of people because in my own experience, it certainly helped me understand a lot. So let me let me give you a few examples. I never realized, for example, how important T 
teaching was to my father and how much joy he got from the teaching. He used to sometimes complain a little bit in my recollection about um, how some of his students weren't making much progress. And I knew that in his last years in Saskatoon, before moving to Montreal, that he was tremendously busy. And I thought the teaching was perhaps too much for him, but I didn't really understand everything that the teaching gave to him. I also didn't understand all that my father did during the Second World War. And it took uh, a conversation with a very good friend of mine, a very old friend by the name of Tom Murison from Saskatchewan, who remembers coming round to my parents' house one day when we were both teenagers, and I wasn't there at the time, and Tom spoke to my father, and my father described to him how, at one point in the Second World War, my dad had actually been driving an ambulance during the London Blitz. And because my dad was allergic to anything that might smack of boasting, I never knew that about him. I was even, I, I blush to say this, I was even slightly ashamed that he spent six years doing nothing more, or so it seemed to me, than driving jeeps and trucks up and down the course of England during the war. My best friend when I was a kid in Lethbridge had been a, a bomber pilot with the RCAF, and I thought, aha, now that's a father to be proud of. I really wasn't proud of my own, and I wish I'd had a chance to, or taken the chance, or seized the chance to ask Dad about some of his wartime experiences, and I didn't do that. I discovered, too, the kind of sweetness there was in his compositions, listening to the recordings, even when they're on old, inadequate tapes. I could listen to some of the, the pieces that he himself wrote for choir or for organ or for piano, and I realized that in spite of the grumpiness and gruffness that I sometimes detected in his, in his, in his conversation, there was a great underlying sweetness, even romanticism, that came through in his music, and it was very important to me to, to realize that. And I also discovered after my mother died, and she lived to the age of 96, she always kept through all their many moves from country to country, province to province, house to house, she always kept two love letters that she had received from him um, after World War II when they were when they were first married and they weren't yet able to live together. My dad had not yet been demobbed from the army base. And And there was one where he wrote the following. So now I'm going to quote my father's own words. And the fact that he could write this to my mother was such a revelation to me. He wrote, I want you so much, darling, that it was probably the feeling of disappointment and, shall I say, frustration, which upset me last week. Can't you still remember those lovely days we had in Southport? I can, and the nights. You see, when a man is with the woman he loves, he wants to be with her oh so much. And, darling, I miss you terribly. I hope you don't mind me saying these things, but now we are married, I feel that it is quite all right for us to say the things we feel about each other, if we want to. I'm so tired of sleeping alone, darling. I feel I can hardly wait until we can sleep together for always, so close to each other, and love each other, oh, so much. Please don't be angry with me for saying this in words, but that is just how I feel, and surely it can't be wrong for me to tell you. Southport was the town in northwest England where they'd gone for a very brief honeymoon before he had to go back to the army base and she had to go back to her teaching. So this is what writing The Organist meant to me. It was a chance for me to come to terms with my parents, which I think is a necessary task 
or desirable task for us all to do, and having written it, I feel as if a burden was lifted from my shoulders that I had been carrying for a long, long time. There were moments of sadness in the book, but it's by no means a misery memoir. It's also a book of tremendous gratitude, and I'm grateful to you for having listened to me talk about it this morning. Thank you. Today's Corona Serenade is Franz Schubert's Stenken, sung by mezzo-soprano Erika Lee Martin. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.